This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, where we chat with writers about the what, why, and how behind their new books. Today's episode is the This Planet is Just Right edition. I'm Rob Wolf, and I hope you're all well and safe. It seems to me science fiction is more relevant now than ever. Climate collapse, pandemics, counterfactual authoritarian governments... Science fiction predicted this, so it's not really fiction anymore. Maybe we should start calling science fiction science reality. But there are fortunately realms of science fiction that aren't real, or not real yet anyway, which is good because we need to stretch our minds and our imaginations even if we can't stretch our legs because we're stuck at home. On the line with me today from her home in Edinburgh is Laura Lamb, whose new book, Goldilocks, takes us into space with an all-female crew bound for a distant Earth-like planet. And it's not just the fact that they're all female that gives the story a special twist, but there's also the little fact that in order to make their journey, they have to steal their spaceship. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the pod this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, how are things in Edinburgh today? Uh, it's actually really nice and sunny. Uh, so I did go for a sneaky walk around the park near my house and got to see all the blossoms, which was nice. That is nice. And is everyone wearing masks there? Not so much in the park, but when you go to grocery stores and, and things like that, most people do. I wear I wear a mask if I'm going food shopping. It's amazing to me that the whole world is basically going through the same thing. That's a very rare it's a very rare moment in history. Yeah, it really is. So you were born in California, right? And and you mm-hmm. somehow made your way to, to Scotland. So how did you end up there? Yeah, so I grew up um, in the East Bay Area, so across the Bay Bridge from San Francisco. And um, I basically argued with books with this guy I met on the internet when I was 15 and he was 16. And then we became friends and then we fell in love and we were long distance for five years. And then I moved to Scotland after I finished my undergraduate degree. And I've been here for 10 years now. Whoa, what a great story. (laughs) I know. It's really cute and sickeningly sweet. (laughs) So how did you decide to go to Scotland and he didn't decide to go come to this side of the Atlantic? Well, health care is a big one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah, and he had a pretty good job, whereas I had just graduated with a degree in creative writing, um, which didn't leave to as many initial opportunities. And immigration was also a lot easier this way, and I'd also been coming to Scotland every summer and winter for about five years, so I had a pretty decent idea of what it would be like to live in the UK, and I thought I would be happier over here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's talk about Goldilocks. Mm-hmm. Why are your five astronauts stealing a spaceship? Well, I wanted to investigate a sort of misogynist future, sort of like The Handmaid's Tale. And I love The Handmaid's Tale, but it happens very quickly in that version of a dystopian future. Like it's, you know, overnight, the bank accounts freeze and that sort of thing. And I wanted to think about how would it happen more insidiously, step by step, because I think that's sort of what we're seeing in the real world now. Like growing up, I thought, you know, as a little girl, I thought sexism was, you know, on the way out. And then the next last few years, I've realized, oh, no, it's it's definitely not, sadly. So I wanted to investigate that. And so I thought, OK, if I want to write about an all-female space like mission, why would they let five women go off into space if they're trying to erode their rights? So I decided that basically they decided to use Valerie Black, who's the captain of this mission. And she's basically Elon Musk meets Sigourney Weaver. She's super rich and super dedicated and has this amazing robotics company. And so they used her to get the money to create this spaceship. And then at the last minute, they found a loophole to kick her and the other four women off of the mission to send men in their place. And they decided no, and stole the spaceship because they know that they're the best people with the skills and the training to be able to go off and find this new planet Cavendish, which is humanity's hope because uh, Earth only has 30 years left of habitability due to climate change. Well, let's talk a little bit about Cavendish. Like, how is it discovered? So I have that it was discovered by one of the big telescopes that we currently use. I forget if I say that it's James Webb or Tess in the book. But they discovered it a few years ago, and I take a few liberties with how quickly technology uh, has accelerated in this near future. And so they're able to use warp drive potentially to get to this planet, which is about 10 and a half light years away. And it's a fake planet, but it's around the real star of Epsilon Eridani, which is also called Ran, named after the Norse god of the sea. So I had a astrophysicist friend give me a short list of potential stars that she thought might have habitable planets. And when I chose Epsilon Eridani, she calculated how long the year would be and how big the sun would be in the sky and what it would actually look like. So that's all accurate, which was cool. And how did you deal with the faster than the speed of light problem? I mean, you talk about warp speed, but there are some references to some very specific technology that you invent that they have to go to Mars. And then from there, they can jump over to Cavendish. I'm always interested in this because that's always the big leap in space travel. Everyone's coming up with different ways of thinking about how you overcome, uh, you know, whether it's a wormhole or something. Yeah, I went, I did a lot of research on all the various methods to get anywhere close to speed of light. At present, the most realistic way to get anywhere near speed of light is like giant gold laser kites in space. Like, literally, that is our current best theory. And I felt like average readers would probably accept something like warp drive that they've seen on Star Trek a lot more than they would giant laser kites in space. 
and also trying to calculate relativity and how long it would take them to accelerate towards Cavendish versus having to decelerate towards Cavendish. I just recognized that that was far, far beyond my capabilities. And I talked to like two different astrophysicists to help me figure it out. It completely made the time scale of the book not quite work. And so I started looking into warp drive from a theoretical standpoint. And so um, I used the Alcubierre drive because um, Alcubierre was or is a scientist who in the 90s came up with a potential way to do warp drive that doesn't break the laws of physics. And it requires using negative energy, which we currently don't know how to harness. But so I took the leap that we figured out how to do that. And so we could theoretically have warp drive. And that just seemed easiest for me because the main focus of the book is not speed of light travel. I just need them to get to point A to point B. And I wanted them to start out a bit slower and get to Mars so I could kind of echo where how we would actually get to Mars potentially in the 2030s um, and then take the big leap of faith from there. I love how science fiction is often grounded in actual science. Like you've done research, you found out what might be more plausible in some work that's already done. And then there's a leap into something even more exciting. So tell me about the name Cavendish, actually. I'm, I'm curious because I looked it up on Wikipedia and there's so many entries, a lot of uh, place names, people names. What's the origin of the name for you? Yeah, so I took it from Margaret Cavendish, who's the author of The Blazing World, which was a proto-science fiction utopian novel published in 1666. Um, and it's quite feminist for a book published in 1666, because back then women weren't writing unless they were publishing under the name Anonymous most of the time. And she has this whole big, long preface basically apologizing for being a woman daring to write a story. And I thought that was interesting. And also, like, her husband wrote a nice poem at the start to show his support of her publishing. And it's an interesting story. It's very strange by modern sensibilities in terms of story shape, because that was when the idea of a novel was very new, and we didn't have all these expected shapes that stories take like we do now. And so it's this woman from our world who gets sucked into an, another world, and she kind of ends up becoming queen of it. And there's a lot of long philosophical digressions and lizard men and bird men. And it's very bizarre, but it's also quite interesting. But even though it's quite feminist and does a lot of interesting things, it's also deeply colonialist and very like pro-monarchy. So I thought that was interesting to think about um, in terms of some of the themes and things that end up coming up in Goldilocks. Was the book something you'd been contemplating a while? I mean, there are a lot of threads that you tie together. I mean, there's the feminism in the face of uh, reactionary patriarchy and environmental degradation, and even the notion of the Goldilocks zone, which is where the title comes from, a planet that is in that habitable zone around a distant star. So it actually was quite quick, the whole process of it, because I ended up selling the book on a two-chapter partial to an editor. So I hadn't written the whole thing. Um, and that's unusual. Usually you write the whole book first. But I met this editor at an event and said I wrote feminist science fiction books because I have previous ones in False Hearts and Shattered Minds, which came out a few years ago. And so he said, oh, we're looking for someone to write a kind of like feminist thriller in space. And I was like, well, I could do that, even though I was like, I don't know enough science to do this, but oh, well, I'm going to give it a go. So I wrote a partial and I sent it off and they asked for a few little tweaks and I redid it and resent it and then it sold. And then I had to finish it within six months. 
So I sold it in January of 2019, and I finished edits, edits by um, October. So it was 10 months altogether. Wow. And what was that process like for you? I mean, that's pretty rigorous. I mean, some writers are fast, some are slow. So how did it feel for you to do it that way? Uh, I tend to either write books relatively quickly or relatively slowly. So I wrote False Hearts quite quickly. Um, That took about three months for the first draft, though it was a very short first draft of about 60,000 words that eventually kind of accordioned out to 100k. But I think I was able to do it this time because this is the first book I've written from start to finish since I started uh, teaching because my my day job these days is lecturing half of the week at Edinburgh Napier University on their creative writing masters, which is very genre focused. So since August 2016, my job has been, you know, taking apart stories, helping other people fix their problems in terms of pacing or plot or characterization. I've really delved a lot more into the craft of writing than I used to probably before I started. So I think that gave me a lot more tools to be able to work quicker and more efficiently. So I don't know if I could have written this book that quickly if I hadn't been teaching for four years. It sounds like you've unearthed a lot of feminist history as connects with science fiction, like the the author. Uh, what was her first name? Cavendish. Margaret Margaret Cavendish, or Lady New Lady Newcastle. She was also was her title. So, like Margaret Cavendish or Lady Newcastle, and it, the book also references the Mercury Thirteen, the mm-hmm. group of women who'd passed the same, some of the same tests as the men, the seven men of the Mercury Project in the late 1950s. I just wondered, you know, did you find inspiration in their stories? And were there other things that you you found that surprised you or inspired you? Yeah, um, Mercury 13 was the thing that really helped me kind of focus the book because I hadn't heard of them before I started kind of digging into the research. And it was the same with the women like Katherine Johnson in Hidden Figures, right? Like they were so influential on spaceflight. And yet it's only a few years ago, the most of us have heard about them. And there was also the woman, I forget her name, who did all of the programming to get us to, did all the Apollo programming. And there's this wonderful photo of her standing next to all the code that she wrote. And it's like as tall as she is. And so I kept, I was just really interested that there's all these women who have been influential in spaceflight, but we still haven't had a woman on the moon. And it still, you know, took a while to get Sally Ride into space. And there's still historically not been as many women in space as there have been men. And the Mercury 13 are a really interesting group. And there's a great documentary about them on Netflix, which I recommend uh, you watch if you want to learn more about them. And they're so such characters. My favorite is Wally Funk. She is so cool. And she's still around and still trying to get into space, even though she's in her 80s. She's amazing. Great. Well... One of the characters, basically, I guess the lead among several leads, is uh, Dr. Naomi Lovelace, who is the daughter of the co-founder of Valerie Black's company, if if I pulled the pieces together correctly. Yeah, yeah, you have. And then Dr. Black, Valerie Black, who you spoke of, who you said was a mashup of, who did you say, Elon Musk? Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) Sigourney Weaver, of course. Or Jodie Foster as well. There's a bit of Jodie Foster in her too. Yes. And so Dr. Black ends up raising Naomi and Naomi ends up being the botanist on the spaceship. And it seems to me she has one of the most important jobs. She has to help Earth's plants adapt to life on Cavendish. 
And I wonder in your mind, what does that involve? I mean, how do you take plants from Earth and make them viable on another planet when there's so many challenges, nutrients, disease, weather, climate? Yeah, so this required a lot more research because I'm not a botanist either. Um, and I was interested in both how Naomi has to figure out how to grow earth crops on Cavendish because they don't really know if they can eat the plant life that's on Cavendish yet. They've been able to get a few samples from drones, which is another, you know, huge technological leap of faith, but we'll, we'll roll with it. So they had access to um, seeds and have been able to grow, you know, kind of like proto trees because sort of the wildlife on Cavendish is more like before the Jurassic era. So, it's not quite as diverse in terms of flora as it is here. So she's trying to figure out, can we grow corn or wheat or that sort of thing once they actually land in Cavendish? Because there's only so much they can bring with them. And once they actually land, they expect that they'll have to spend at least years before anyone else can come join them, probably. And so that's a big challenge. If they can't do it, they might very well starve to death before anyone else can catch up to them. And then she also has to keep everyone fed on the way there. And so the way that she's doing it is doing her experiments with actual food groups, but mostly they're eating algae because that doesn't require soil. It basically only requires light um, and some nutrients. It's pretty easy to grow. Uh, and I was able to learn a lot about that because one of my good friends, Dr. Sinead Collins, is a scientist here in Edinburgh who I met in a cafe in the most millennial fashion ever. I spilled avocado toast on myself and she gave me some napkins. <laughs> and then we started chatting. And she runs a lab where she looks at algae in the context of climate change. So she's brilliant. She's basically Naomi, except not an astronaut. So I was able to ask her a lot. And she did a science read of a draft for me where I basically went through and highlighted the super sciencey bits and had her make sure that they made sense and give me more detail. Great to have friends like that. I know, very handy. I'm very glad I spilled avocado toast on myself that day. It's nice to know you can get avocado toast in Edinburgh, too. Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> One thing that came to mind as I was reading the book and have been sheltering in place, basically locked down here in New York City, how being on a spaceship is so cramped. And I thought, oh, the world is kind of experiencing that now. Those those who, who are able to stay home and aren't essential workers and going out into the world. And I just, I always wonder about that when people write about space travel and long journeys in space and the confinement that people experience. But I could relate to it a little more. And I, I thought it would drive me nuts to be on a spaceship because it, it was driving me nuts in the beginning being home. I was trying to get used to it, which is weird. But but I just wondered about that, about what you think of psychologically happens to people when they're in that situation. Yeah, I didn't expect that all of the research and astronaut memoirs that I read last year would end up being a how-to guide for 2020. Uh, that's sort of what seems to have happened. Like I have a whole chapter where I talk about the importance of keeping routine and the challenges of isolation um, because like we, we are having the very light version of what it's like to be an astronaut. Cause at least, you know, we're able to have the internet um, on Atalanta, the spaceship, 
you know, they don't have ready access to the internet or to contact their friends. They're really cut off. They only have, they're able to contact one person on earth, which is Valerie's son, Evan. Um, and they're not able to, you know, go for walks. They, you know, have to exercise. I bypassed astronauts currently have to work out two hours a day in space to offset the effects of microgravity. But I have a gravity ring as another big tech jump. So they don't have to do that, but they still work out. But yeah, it's a cramped ship. There's not a lot of extra room. They have little pockets that they can go to. But yeah, they realize that they're the only people they're going to see for years. And so you really have to have clear communication um, so that things don't fester. You have to be willing to reach out for help. Like there's a psychologist on board who's meant to keep everyone sort of mentally healthy and physically healthy as well, because she's also the doctor. So yeah, I think it would. it's a lot harder to do it on a spaceship, but I think there's takeaways that we can apply here as we're stuck in quarantine for the foreseeable future. Even though the five women are primed as heroic for their endeavors to take this ship and take back control, they had built the ship, they had trained for it. They're not all perfect saints, I guess is a way to put it, without revealing too much of the plot. Like Dr. Mm -hmm. Black, she's she's leading this expedition, but she definitely has some flaws. And so you weren't trying to gloss things over, I guess, in terms of, you know, people's people, their imperfections. Yeah, I think if you were reading about five perfect people, that would probably not be a very interesting book. Uh, I think what makes stories interesting usually is their different motivations. Like they all, all five women on the ship have different reasons for why they want to go to Cavendish and they all have different secrets that they're hiding from each other and from themselves. And they all have very different ideas of what a new earth should be and how humanity can best move forward. And I think we're seeing that kind of working its way in real time on the stage because on the world stage here because coronavirus is terrible and this pandemic is awful but it because it's this worldwide destabilizer it's actually very dangerous for the people in power because we're starting to realize things can be different like for 10 years in the uk they've been telling us oh austerity means that we can't fund this we can't fund that but you know right now they're for a lot of the country, they're paying 80% of their wage if they're furloughed. And all this money has, you know, come out the woodwork. And they're making noises about how it will have to be paid back. But we're all starting to realize, oh, well, if you just tax the billionaires who haven't been paying tax for years, then we can fund all of this and more. So I'm wondering if it'll be harder to kind of put that all back in the box when we move out from this period. I'd like to think so. But the pessimist in me also thinks that this may only exacerbate the gap between the rich and the poor rather than help level the playing field. Well, there is a lot of conversation about there being a bright side to this very dark event in terms of cleaner environment, in terms of at least underscoring some of the inequalities. So maybe now that they've been highlighted, we can do things about them. And people are talking about how we can retain or act on some of these things. So it is both eye-opening and maybe a motivator. It would be interesting. Hopefully something positive and la lasting and positive will come from it. 
Yeah, I hope so. Because if you think about, you know, the last Great Depression, we got the New Deal out of that. And even before all this happened, there were people making noises about how we really need a Green New Deal. Um, and things like universal basic income had been floated around for years. And I think now we're starting to realize that if we're going to move forward and be able, because this isn't probably going to be the only pandemic that we're going to face in our lives, is my thought. Because they said, sort of, because of the way we're out of sync with nature. There's at least like three new viruses every year that can pass over from animals. Next time it might be a higher fatality rate. And do we have systems in place to actually lock another one down if this, you know, another one kind of rears its head? Or, you know, how are we going to cope with climate change and air pollution and all of this if we don't start actually doing stuff? And so there's going to be all these big disruptions in the next coming decades unless we find a way. I mean, no matter what, there's going to be disruption because even if we decide to really change things for the better, it's going to require a very different mindset on things. We'll probably have to reduce how much meat and dairy that we you know, eat and travel less or maybe there's an extra tax on airfare, that sort of thing. Um, so no matter what, I think we need to all realize that we're never going to go back to the old normal before this, or we shouldn't, because it's the old normal is what got us into this problem in the first place. Well, there is a pandemic in your book as well. And yeah. <laughs> I was wondering what it feels like to see the world now crippled by COVID-19 right when your book is coming out. Yeah, I kind of accidentally predicted the future in a way I didn't particularly want to. I was talking to Chuck Wendig about this a little bit because he did that to probably better than me in um, his book, Wanderers. Because um, I do have a pandemic in the book, but it's not like the main focus of the book. Um, it's an important plot point, but it's not the main plot point, I would say. So I've done a lot of research on it. In retrospect now, I'm like, oh, the timeline of that is way too quick. Um, if I knew now what I did then. But yeah, it's it was really strange. Like when the COVID-19 news first broke on January 22nd, I like... For, like forwarded the news article to my editor and was like, oh, oh, okay. And back, you know, back in January, we hoped we would contain it. And in my book, everyone wears masks outside, even though it's for climate change reasons rather than pandemic reasons. And yeah, there are some weird similarities. So I do almost feel like I have to give a content note um, where if you really don't want to read anything with a pandemic, maybe stay away from my book. But I don't go into loads of really gory detail or anything like that. And I do think the book at its end ends up being quite hopeful. I hope so. So it might be comforting, but I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about reading it just now. Although I did read Wanderers last, like a few weeks ago and at probably the worst time you could read it. And I still enjoyed it. Maybe it makes people feel better to read about something that's possibly worse. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also too like stories have an ending Whereas at the moment, we don't know when or how this is going to end or how we're going to move out of lockdown and that sort of thing. So that's why I found reading Wanderers comforting. Yeah, if there's anything that we're all experiencing, I think, is the level of uncertainty that's always in our lives. But we just don't, we pretend it's not there. And now yeah. it's right in our face because it's being discussed every day. Like, what's next? What's next? No one knows. Yeah, and you can't you can't escape it and you know, you're stuck at home. I'm trying to check the news less and I'm trying to stay offline more in the evenings because it's 
but it's hard. It's so easy to just pick up your phone and suddenly half an hour later, you're still like doom scrolling through the news and feeling very hopeless about everything. I feel like there's kind of been this scream building up in my head for weeks now. And every I'll be fine for a few days. Like I'll be reasonably productive. I'll get stuff done. I'll feel like I'll keep a routine and then I'll just absolutely crash. I had that last Friday where I just, I couldn't do anything else. I just had to lie down and I couldn't even, I just basically stared at the wall and blinked slowly and listened to music. That's a form of meditation. It sounds like a good response, a natural response to this level of stress. Yeah. I was wondering how having Boris Johnson get so sick, I mean, having your leader get so sick, I would think that would feel very destabilizing, whether you like the man or not. Uh, I think it would be Yeah, it's very strange. And it's really frustrating, too, because he bragged about still shaking hands with coronavirus patients. And then he got really sick. And it's like, well, obviously... You weren't adhering to the social distancing that we were stressing was important. And he, we went into lockdown quite late. It's very strange being both an American and a UK citizen where, you know, both my home country and my current country have pol- like fascist politicians with bad hair um, and really conservative policies. And yeah, it's weird that he's like not leading the country at the moment and that it's all his, you know, other players in the in the cabinet and stuff so we've got pretty patel who's very xenophobic giving daily briefings and things like that um so yeah it, it feels very strange having no one at the helm technically and they're both born in new york which is kind of weird right I boris know, johnson's very... born in new york very yeah, yeah i think so yeah he i if i remember correctly from the news he had to rena- he he was born an american citizen although also british from birth and re- had to renounce his American citizenship to become prime minister, but he'd had it yeah. all this time. But he technically was meant, evidently, if you're born in the States, even though if you don't live there, you're still supposed to file your taxes every year, even if you don't pay. And I guess he technically hasn't done that. So even though I haven't lived in the US for 10 plus years, I still have to tell them how much I made in the UK every year, which is the only other country in the world that requires this except for like Eritrea or some random tiny country. Oh my god. It's so weird. And it, you don't have to pay anything unless you make over like, I don't know, $110,000 or something, which sadly I do not make more than that. So I, I never have to pay tax in the US. But the fact that I still have to do it every year is such a faff because I can't do it. I can't do it online either. I have to mail it in. But it might mean that I'm going to get the stimulus check. I don't know if I will or not, though. We'll see. If it right. shows up. Oh yeah. Well, good luck with that. As long yes, as it's, be, I'd, I'd be happy if it showed up. Sti- but we'll see. <laughs> stimulating the world economy. It's all good. It's all good for the planet ultimately, I guess. So, thank you so much. It's been great having you on New Books and Science Fiction. It's really been fun talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I've been talking to Laura Lamb about Goldilocks, which comes out this month, May 2020, from Orbit. Please subscribe to the show. If you want to support us and and never miss a new episode, and consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the show. The New Books Network was founded by and continues to produce tons of author podcasts, interviews under the leadership of Marshall Poe, and he is supported by the hardworking editor, Leanne Wilson. Stay safe. Wash your hands a lot and wear a mask when necessary and read books and stories to fill your mind with ideas and inspiration so you can enjoy today and envision a better tomorrow. Until next time.